Whenever normal agencies prove inadequate to the task and it becomes necessary for the executive branch of the federal government to use its powers and authority to uphold federal courts, the president's responsibility is inescapable. In accordance with that responsibility, I have today issued an executive order directing the use of troops under federal authority to aid in the execution of federal law at Little Rock, Arkansas. This became necessary when my proclamation of yesterday was not observed and the obstruction of justice still continues. It is important that the reasons for my action be understood by all our citizens. As you know, the Supreme Court of the United States has decided that separate public educational facilities for the races are inherently unequal and therefore compulsory school segregation laws are unconstitutional. Our personal opinions about the decision have no bearing on the matter of enforcement. The responsibility and authority of the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution are very clear. Hi, I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam. Sixty-five years ago today, on September 24, 1957, Little Rock Central High School was integrated, a process, one that began more than three years earlier with the United States Supreme Court's unanimous decision in Brown v. Board of Education, finally reached its initial goal, thanks in part to the invocation of a law that was 150 years old. In the opening clip, you heard a portion of President Dwight D. Eisenhower's message to the nation on September 24, 1957, in which he addressed the growing crisis in Little Rock. While there had already been attempts at integration, and while the president had met with the state's governor and signed Executive Order 10730, there had not yet been any progress in the successful integration of the school. Responding to Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus sending the state's National Guard to prevent black students from entering the school on September 4th, Eisenhower ultimately invoked the Insurrection Act of 1807, sent the Army's 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock, and federalized the entire Arkansas National Guard, stating, quote, the president's responsibility is inescapable. After the commercial break, we'll hear from special guest Brian Schwigger, Chief of Interpretation at the Little Rock Central High School National Historic Site, as he shares the story of the integration of the school on what will be the 65th anniversary of the historical event this month. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With us today to talk about the 65th anniversary of the integration of Little Rock Central High School is Brian Schwigger, Chief of Interpretation at the Little Rock Central High School National Historic Site. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Brian, as we begin our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your role with the National Park Surface and uh, how it relates to Little Rock Central High School? Absolutely. So, as you said, I'm the chief of interpretation here, and interpreters are the park rangers that give programs, give tours that connect with schools, virtual programs uh, that, that bring the story to you, the visitor. And so I've worked here at the site for about eight years, worked at two other national park units as well, and it's really critical um, that we, in this role, convey the story to everybody in a way that's meaningful and relevant, especially in the times that uh, we are in today and, and the time we're talking about uh, this story that happened 65 years ago. So to provide some background for our listeners, Brian, can you explain what was going on in the country during that time in terms of civil rights and how this connects to the Supreme Court case Brown versus Board of Education? Yeah, absolutely. So this story happens in Little Rock in 1957. Uh, The U.S. is at a time of social and educational and political protest on both sides. We as a nation have just moved out of uh, the Korean War, and so the Cold War is upon us. Um, You mentioned Brown v. Board. The Supreme Court has passed this landmark decision in May of 1954. Um, on the civil rights front, in 1955, you saw Rosa Parks get arrested and the ensuing bus boycott in Montgomery. You also saw the horrible, uh, tragic death of, of Emmett Till in Money, Mississippi. Here in Arkansas, you saw uh, an integrated school in Hoxie, which Hoxie is not even the first school to integrate in Arkansas, but it really kind of set the standard uh, nationally with how the press would play a role in integration. Life magazine came to Hoxie, a little small town in northeast Arkansas, and covered it. And then the disturbance uh, and the, the protest began there. And in 1956, the, the year before Little Rock, you saw nearly the entire South, uh, their congressional delegations, sign the, con- uh, the, the Southern Manifesto. Sorry. And it's a pledge, essentially, not to, not to honor integration, not to follow the Brown decision. And so you've got a lot of things happen all at once. There's this fear in this country, of course, of communism and the fear that civil rights is the conduit uh, for communism to infiltrate this country. And so when Brown happens May of 54, it kind of just shakes the, ju- the judicial framework of this nation. It repeals Plessy v. Ferguson, so it strikes down that separate but equal allowance uh, in public accommodations, so public schools especially, it's important that it's a unanimous decision. Uh, and the governor at that time in Arkansas, Governor uh, Cherry, says Arkansas will comply with Brown. There is so little framework given on how to comply with Brown that there's actually a second Brown decision uh, one year later. And from that comes that famous phrase, you must begin to integrate with all deliberate speed. Right in that same time frame here in Little Rock, still waiting to integrate the head of the Little Rock School District or Little Rock School Board at the time called uh, Virgil Blossom, introduces this plan to begin essentially step-down integration, compliance with with Brown. And at first it's going to be at the elementary school level and then work up to high schools, but that gets flipped. And so the plan is over six-plus years 
in Little Rock. If they start in 1957, they hope to eventually work down and have all schools integrated. Uh, and Central High School is chosen to be that test case, that place of first integration in Little Rock, but with some with some caveats. In order to do this, they're going to build, the school board's going to build a new all-white high school to open the same year. And there's been an all-African-American school built that opened uh, in 55, 56. And so in order to comply with integration, interestingly, they're still going to maintain segregation at two of the other high schools in Little Rock. And so that's kind of the groundwork for how do we get uh, to Little Rock from, from Brown in 54. So um, taking it back uh, 65 years from that big picture uh, that you summarized for us, can you talk about the background of the students, their experiences, um, the students that were involved uh, in integrating Little Rock Central High School? Yeah, absolutely. And and interestingly enough, it, we, we know the, the Little Rock Nine, but it, it, sh- it could have been more than that. Actually, 17 students had made it through the selection process. And on the Sunday before integration would happen on, on Tuesday uh, in 1957, the school district asks these students if they will just start the school year at Horace Mann, the segregated African-American high school, then they'd be led into Central High School once kind of some of this fervor died down. And so it, it's actually 10 students who start this process. We know it is nine, but 10 start the process um, on the, the first attempt of integration. And these students come from, uh, you know, very different backgrounds. I think we use the words Little Rock Nine so much that to some it seems like they all had the same motivation for wanting to come to Central High School. They all had the same goals and, and you know, perspectives, um, you know, vocations down the road, but they all very different. I mean, Thelma Mothershed, for example, um, came from a family where her older sisters were kind of pioneers in their own right with desegregation. Melba Patillo's mother had been one of the first African-American graduates at the University of Arkansas. Uh, So, you know, motivations kind of came unique uh, to some others. You know, Gloria Ray, her father had studied at uh, Tuskegee with George Washington Carver, um, Minnie Jean Brown's father was just determined that she do this, and you know, so they all came to this with incredible family support. Whether mom, dad, brother, sister, you know, grandparents, aunts and uncles, they had a very strong network behind them, encouraging them to do this. And and you know what they would face would be very different, but what they had at home was kind of the bedrock, I think for their desire to do this. Um, only one senior, only one 12th grader in the group, uh, six young ladies, three young men, uh, two that were in 10th grade. We said the one senior, so six in the 11th grade. And so, you know, some of the classes they would have would be similar and some of the um, opportunities that they would face would all be the same because a factor of their admission was they couldn't do anything at all extracurricular. They had to give up athletics, you know, music, any kind of activity that really only supplements your high school experience. They had to give that up. That was uh, from, from the school board. And so despite that and despite the, the scrutinization they all faced, they all came to this starting line determined to do this. I think it's so important we recognize that they came to this um, with their eyes open, but I think they even had no idea what they were about to face. 
um, as it played out. Yeah, so you talked about some of the family backgrounds of the students, but is there any particular stories from the days of integration, those initial days, months maybe, uh, from any of those particular students that you can share with us? Yeah, two of my favorites. Um, one from Carlisle Walls, where she talks about her father impressed upon her. My tax dollars aren't segregated, so why should my daughter's opportunity to go to school you know, be segregated? Uh, and one of the nine even shared with me this week in a conversation that, you know, sometimes the, the reasons we do things uh, maybe don't affect the outcome or maybe uh, give the example. She said part of the reason that she wanted to come is that her two best friends are two of these other nine students, and they thought it would be really great if they could walk to school together. You know, and she she kind of laughed when she said it. Who knew that so much of this change would come to all three of us? But you know, the reason that I wanted to do this was was partly to get a better education, but part of it was to be with my friends. And you think about they were fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, right? They they weren't coming to this with adult eyes, um, with the benefit of sixty five years of of hindsight. And so, you know, the the reasons that they wanted to do this, um, you know, played out in a much more difficult way than they would have thought. But those are two of the of the stories that. I think really kind of humanize this and make it relatable, um, you know, when we talk about this story, especially to young people. Yeah, speaking of young people and even the information that you're sharing with us just, I think, naturally generates connections for all of us, right, with this experience mm-hmm. and what the students had to go through. But as we did our research to prepare for this episode, we learned that there is so much to this story that we knew about. And understanding it is a, a larger story, but... In a nutshell, uh, can you talk about how the day unfolded for this group? Well, the backdrop of this, this is integration is going to happen right after Labor Day. And so on Labor Day in Little Rock, the governor of Arkansas, Governor Orville Faubus, whose I think name most of us will know, goes on television and talks about what's going to happen that next day. And on the first day of school, he talks about it's not going to be possible to carry this out unless he brings out the Arkansas National Guard. And he pitches it as a way to maintain peace and good order. And so these these troops will be there to protect the citizens and property of Little Rock. And then privately, once he goes off camera, he changes the, the scope of, of their assignment to be not protection, but prevention. And so on the first day of school, the following morning on September the 3rd, there are 270-plus soldiers ringing this 21-acre campus, and there's media from... Uh, all across the United States, and then there's angry people. There are people so determined to maintain the way it's always been that they're out there in full throat. They've had you know, prayer vigils and meetings. They just don't want to see change happen. Absent that day are those 10 students. They are kept at home, not uh, by family, but by a court. And the Little Rock School Board that morning asked a federal judge, essentially, if things are so bad we need the Arkansas National Guard to be there, this is, let's have a delay. Delay is famous in stories of integration. Delay is a way to hopefully get denial from people who don't want to integrate. And so thankfully the judge here, Ronald Davies, I think saw through this and at the end of the first day of school told the school board and they communicated to Daisy Bates, integration is going to happen. It's going to happen on the second day. And so Daisy Bates had made plans to have a group of ministers who volunteered to come uh, escort those students to be there with them the next morning on Wednesday morning. And Daisy conveys that message to nine students. Well, there's 10. 
And so Elizabeth Eckford, who's in these photographs that we all know all by herself, is put into that situation for all reasons, of all reasons. She has no phone at her home. And so without getting the message, she shows up on Wednesday, September 4th, ready to face integration, uh, thinking that those soldiers are there you know, for her benefit, but she's all by herself. And so if you see the photographs or watch the footage, you see it. It's, it's a swarm of activity. The soldiers direct her across the street from Central High School. The crowd just engulfs her and begin to verbally threaten her, you know, go back to Africa. They talk about lynching her. I mean, they say some horrible, horrible, horrible things, spitting on her. When Elizabeth, you know, tries several times to, to get onto the campus of Central High School where she sees her her white classmates being allowed to, to access, she's denied. And at one point she's denied with, uh, not with words, but with rifles being crossed in her face. I mean, the nonverbal there, you know, says everything. She makes her way to the end of the campus where there's a bus bench, but before she can make it there, I think two really important things to know happen. One is she looks for anybody to help her. And she sees a woman who's, she later said, reminded her of her grandmother, probably just based off age and, and look. And Liz smiles at her, and this woman spits right in her face. And so now that panic, that fight or flight, I think, has set in. And Liz is so just so afraid and, and doesn't want to cry uh, in front of these people. And that iconic photograph gets taken right as she's making her way to the bus bench, which she thinks is a place of safety. Uh, and it's you know lasted forever, and it really encapsulates one moment of a much larger morning for, for one young lady. The other nine are making their way to where Liz has just been, but with a group of ministers. When Liz gets to the end of the street, she will sit on a bus bench for a little over 30 minutes, and one of the nine actually comes over as he's walking to the predetermined rendezvous point. Caesar sits down beside her. She's afraid that if she goes back to his home where he wants to take her for safety, that she's just setting him up for attack because now the mob will know where he lives. Daisy Bates' husband shows up, tries to get Liz to go with him. She won't move. Uh, one of the Bates' friends, a woman named Grace, shows up and kind of castigates the crowd um, about how they're treating her. And Liz, at, some, at one point, has tried to walk over to a drugstore across the street from where she's sitting, and the people just lock the doors. So it's it's just a horrifically um, depressing moment. And she just, there she waits. Finally, a bus comes. She gets on it. She leaves. Uh, the other nine, actually, when they approach the same starting point that Elizabeth had started, where she's directed across the street, a soldier comes out and won't even speak to the to the nine now, to the nine that are together. He just speaks to the ministers and pretty clearly lets them know, you shall not pass. You know, the, the, the orders are from the governor of Arkansas not to do this. And so that first day, all 10 show up and all 10 go home. There won't be a second attempt for uh, several more days uh, until about the, the start of the fourth week of school. So um, famously, that moment is seen uh, by nearly all of America, and the White House sees it. And early in the process, the White House, Eisenhower, had been asked about what's going to happen in Little Rock. Little Rock's not the first to do this, but it's the first capital in the Upper South 
you know, think about what's below us geographically, Jackson, Mississippi, Montgomery, Alabama. So this is really a big domino that's going to fall, and, and what happens here is going to affect what happens there. And Eisenhower is really reluctant to get involved, and he basically says that you know laws can't change people's hearts. And so he himself, I think, is kind of watching and waiting to see what the response is, and that's the response on the, the first attempt of integration uh, on that Wednesday. So as we were preparing for this episode, we found that uh, your favorite quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is, uh, quote, you must meet physical force with soul force. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the meaning of this quote to you and how it relates to the ongoing story as they made additional attempts and as they were finally able to attend school at Little Rock Central High School? Yeah, absolutely. That quote, ironically, was given a few months before Little Rock happens. It was There's a, a gathering at the Washington Monument on the third anniversary of Brown. So in May of uh, 57, uh, Dr. King speaks and, and says that line. And what he's talking about is the sole force you meet physical force with is its love and nonviolence. And we mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier, the support that those nine uh, had, the familial support, you know, the extended family support that was the foundation for uh, you know, they're doing this and how just critical that was, but also the nonviolence um, in a situation like on that first day and when they finally get to school with physical violence all around you, um, how do you remain nonviolent? How when you are mentally intimidated, when you are ignored, when you are you are a target every day of the school year, how do you remain nonviolent um, they had to be nonviolent. I mean, the 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 conversations had by Daisy Bates with them, and some of them had actually kind of gotten just a little bit of of what would amount to be kind of some nonviolence training. But how do you remain nonviolent when all that around you is either provoking you to react, or it is just you know sinking you kind of further into the recesses of sadness or or PTSD. Um, and so this is a whole different story if the nine's reaction uh, is 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 different. If it's if they bullied back to bully, it's a whole different story. And and I don't know how they made it through the first day or the second day or the third day when you had to just be vitally aware of everything happening around you. You had to be cognizant of what would happen at home. I mean, I think when the military comes, the perception might be that they lived happily ever after, and they're not protected at home. They're not protected on the weekends. The press has done such a great job of telling the world who they are that, conversely, anybody can find them. I mean, it, it, the nonviolent uh, adherence that they had at such a young age is—it's heroic. And that's that's not that's not hyperbolic. I mean, it's it's incredible how they remain nonviolent with all that stuff around them. So that was their sole force. It was to use the support at home and to remain nonviolent, and it, it, you know, it changed the story. So, Brian, we have uh, lots of educators that are listening to this podcast, and I know a large part of what you do uh, in your job is speaking with students. And to that point, are there different you know, takeaways that you try to impress upon, say, an elementary group versus a middle school group versus a high school group? Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the heart of that, though, is just it's important to know this story. You know, we have to know 
we have to know where we have come from. We have to know what others have done, the sacrifices and the struggles. We have to know those things to understand the climate that we're in today. And, and some of that will help foretell uh, the present and maybe even the future. And we have to talk about how silence can never be an option. And you don't have to be an adult to speak, right? Just when you see something, say something. And, and to to speak is to act and to not speak is to act. And so sometimes your silence often, you may not realize it, condones what is going on. Um, we, I mean, this story is just, it's quintessential, uh, American or otherwise. All the themes that the nine display, courage and perseverance, we mentioned nonviolence. It's important that those behaviors are recognized so they can be modeled for our young people. Um, you think of all the actors in the story. I mean, it's incredible. You've got the White House and the governor's mansion here in Arkansas. You've got the National Guard and the 101st. You've got the, what the role the press plays and TV, which is you know in in so many homes in America, and that definitely has an impact on this story. Uh, one of the nine uh, had said earlier this week, you know, kids can make a president act just a simple statement kids can make a president act and it's it's important that young people know that they have an influence you may not be able to vote yet you may not be able to rent a car yet or you're not in college yet but it doesn't mean that your voice isn't important i think it's also important that we you know while the nine yes had to have the assistance and the help of so many other people look at all the things that kind of reflect self with them, the self-determination to do this, the self-control to not fight back, and just the belief in themselves that they had to have to keep going back day after day after day. Sometimes when we talk with young people, uh, I say young people, any student especially, we talk about three M's. We talk about moments, you know, things that happen, moments like this. We talk about meanings. What do we take from this? What's what's the lesson? What's what? What are the themes that we want you to to draw out of this? And then the memory. Memory can be an incredible teacher, uh, not only just to remember something, whether it's for you know a, a test or something else, but memory. Memory can often direct us. It's a reminder of the past. It can be a great influencer of the future. And so those three M's I think are just so critical to to plant those seeds. In the, in the minds of students uh, when you when you interact with them. Brian, yeah, uh, really want to thank you for your time today and always want to give our guests a, a chance to share any other information or resources um, that you would like to share with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's incredible resources. Let me just hit a couple. Um, Little Rock Nines, most of them have written on this, written books about this. It's a great, it's great primary source accounts from those who lived it and to see how their experiences, while similar, uh, were, were different as well. There's incredible films, documentaries about this, you know, from every different angle, about Daisy Bates or about the governor or about the Little Rock Nine. Uh, but I want you to use us as a resource. Use the National Park Service as a resource. There's incredible information out there. Uh, that's provided whether on the web or the National Park Service app. Uh, so use us as a resource. Our last name is Service, right? So let us be in service to you in any way that we can to help you further your knowledge or understanding um, of this incredibly important story. So it, just pick up on that thread, place-based learning plays a real uh, significant role in educating young people. Is there an opportunity mm-hmm. for virtual visits? Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, if you can't get to this place, we can come to where you're based, right? We, I did a call earlier this morning with a group of students from Michigan, 
And while they couldn't come to me, we went to them and took this story to them. So, yes, let there be no barrier, no, no you know, nothing that we can't uh, connect by because of the technology we have today. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you again, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Through our research, we discovered case law, key moments in history, and the people and families who were involved with the story of the Little Rock Nine. And in our conversation with Brian Schwigger of the National Park Service, we gained a broader understanding of what was going on in the country during that time. He also filled in some of the blanks with important details from that day. One of the stories he shared that resonated with our team was that of Elizabeth Eckford's experience walking to school that day, her attempt to enter the building, and the reaction among people who were present. In our collection of C-SPAN classroom resources, we have a bell ringer that highlights her story. Let's play a portion of a video from that resource that takes you on location and includes archival images that reflect what occurred that day. That was Ponder's Drugstore, which was open for business, and it was open on that day. Elizabeth thought, maybe I can call a cab or my mother, and when she attempted to open the door, the owner locked it, leaving her alone with the mob. A New York Times reporter, Benjamin Fine, walked up to her and said, don't let them see you cry. And a white woman named Grace Lorch tried to calm the mob down and say, what if this was your child? You should be ashamed of yourself. But according to Liz- Elizabeth, that aroused the mob even more. And she finally got on the bus and made it to her mother safely. But to this very day, that moment in time is etched in her memory. Thanks for selecting that clip to play, Pam. As you mentioned, Pam, this clip is one of the two in our bell ringer entitled Integration of Little Rock Central High School. Preceding this clip in the bell ringer is another clip that presents an overview of the segregation and inequity in Little Rock, Arkansas throughout 1957 and earlier. We hear from teachers each week that, of all of our resources, our bell ringers often best serve their goals in the classroom with their students, as each bell ringer has short clips and pre-made questions for students. And while we only listened to about 40 seconds of your clip, Pam, if we had had the time to listen to the entire clip, students would be able to address topics like the circumstances in Little Rock leading up to the first day of school, Elizabeth Eckford's experience on that day, and the reaction to this event among world leaders. Also included in this clip are live shots of the area around Little Rock Central High School, providing a unique opportunity for your students to compare their own educational experiences to what these students experienced um, throughout those days and weeks. Or students could discuss how the iconic photograph that was taken on that day, commonly called now the Scream image, influenced the civil rights movement and compare that image's impact with that of 21st century communication methods like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, or Instagram. Yeah, and linking back to our earlier discussion with Brian, not only did he talk about the significance of this day, but he also highlighted the courage and fortitude that these nine young students embodied standing tall in the face of ugliness and adversity to ultimately achieve their goal of integrating the school. As educators, we all understand how powerful a learning tool primary source materials like oral histories can be for students. And here we have a clip of Ernest Green, who was the first African-American to graduate from Little Rock Central High School in 1958. And he's discussing the legacy and what we can learn from their experiences. Well, I hope the legacy is that um, we were pursuing the best of... um public high school education that Little Rock had to offer, that we saw a nexus between uh, the education that Central High School offered to a greater opportunity for us as adults. 
And I think 50 years later, we're looking back on it, that we achieved that. Now, my other part of uh, this legacy is that um, other young people will look at us um, and see that it is possible to overcome uh, barriers. It is over, it's possible to overcome uh, other people's restrictions on you. And that uh, um, that is uh, what I think part of the American dream, the opportunity, the chance to use education as a building block and try to get the best out of it that you can. One other note to mention is that in 1999, these nine students were awarded congressional gold medals by then-President Bill Clinton and members of Congress, and that was to honor them for their courage and determination in helping end segregation in Southern schools. You'll find a clip of the ceremony and all of the resources that we featured and discussed in this episode, and you can find those on the podcast page on our featured resources site at cspan.org slash classroom. Before we close this episode recognizing the 65th anniversary of the integration of Little Rock Central High School, I have to share one story that struck me. According to the National Park Service, one of the Little Rock Nine, Minnie Jean Brown, was expelled in February 1958, just five months after integration. The reason for the expulsion? Calling a girl who had hit her with a purse, quote, white trash. This, coming shortly after being suspended for dropping chili on some boys after they refused to let her pass to her seat in the cafeteria. After Brown's expulsion, the story goes, students passed around cards that read, quote, one down, eight to go. It is our hope that you use the stories that were shared in this episode and with our interview with the National Park Service's Brian Schwigger to support your students' understanding of both the importance of the event and the 65th anniversary, but also what other lessons can be learned by objectively examining moments, meanings, and memory, as Brian put it. If you're looking for new and timely information about all of our resources, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at C-SPAN Classroom. And if you would like to connect with our team to learn more about what our team has to offer teachers and students, please email us anytime at educate at cspan.org. And that's it for this week. Join us next time as we recognize Hispanic Heritage Month. Until then, thank you for joining us.